Why do we talk? <laughs> why do we not talk? Why do we think other people ought to be quiet or even shut it down? We have a tendency to speak without really thinking about the implications of what does it mean that we want to say something. When we think about the power of speech, we often think about uh, Scripture, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We think about warnings in the New Testament, like James, the brother of Jesus, who says, you do realize that the tongue is its kind of like a spark. I mean, like it could set a whole forest on fire. When we think about what's been happening in the West, in California, and in my home state of Oregon, where my own brother had to evacuate with his family for five days due to the fires, we realize that one spark can set on fire the whole world around you. You see, speaking has power, and we long to speak. But one question we might ask is, do we do it well? Are we making the most of this gift? And are there ways that we're communicating that could be more helpful or ways that we're communicating that we need to stop because they're so damaging? I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to catalyze courageous conversations that revolutionize the way that we love each other. If you are returning, thank you. Thank you for uh, your support and for liking, subscribing, and sharing. And that might be why some of you are here for the first time is because someone reached out to you and said, hey, join us for the Love First podcast. I want to thank you for joining us as in this episode, we explore the power of communication. So when we think about the last enjoyable conversation we had, what, what was it like? What made it enjoyable? Do you have people that you, you just kind of click with? You feel like they could kind of finish your sentences, but finish them in a way that you agree with, that makes you feel good. Are there people that you feel like, man, they, they really get me? Do you know someone that's a good listener? Or do people often compliment you and say that you are a good listener. Communication can be beautiful, but now let, let's kind of flip this over. You remember the last conversation that didn't go well? In person, online. Have you ever been on a phone call where you, you wanted to throw your phone across the room? The conversation was so hurtful and so frustrating. Have you ever felt like hanging up on someone? Have you just hung up on someone? Have you seen an email in your inbox and thought to yourself, man, do I even risk opening that? We know what it feels like to miscommunicate. We know what it feels like for there to be a failure to communicate. We know what it feels like for someone to accuse us of communicating in such a way that it was damaging to them. 
We also know what it feels like for someone to say something to us that cuts so deeply, and yet they may or may not know it. Why do we communicate? Well, we're wired to communicate. This is exactly how humans function. This is part of our DNA. And I want you to think about this for a moment. We start hearing others communicate before we're even born. In the process of being born, we may hear people communicating as we are emerging into life. People want us to communicate. My wife and I enjoy being the parents of five adult children and the grandparents of three amazing granddaughters, and we wanted all of them to speak. I can remember when the children were young, and we would try to figure out what in the world they were saying. We would try to teach them words. We wanted to know, did they say dada? Did they say mama? Did they say Baba, you know, did they, what, what, were they trying to tell us they needed to go to the restroom? Were they trying to tell us that they were sick? And I can remember when they started getting words and they could put those words together and then those words became sentences. We're a pretty verbal family. I remember when one of our children was about three years old and this little one, very, very verbal, a fantastic communicator to this day, looked at me and said, this is ri ridiculous. And I couldn't believe that word came out of that little human and used it perfectly. I remember another time when one of our sons was really, really struggling. He was about four years old. And I said to him, I said, are you angry or are you sad or are you frustrated? And he said, I'm frustrated. And he was right. He had already learned to connect what was going on on the inside of him with words. My father had a stroke when he was in his 70s. And yes, it did impact part of his body. He did have to go through rehabilitation to learn how to use his, his, one, of his one side of his body again, but it impacted his speech. And I remember later my father saying to me, the worst part of the stroke is that I couldn't remember words. I would look for them. I would search for them. And he used this. He said, I knew there was an exquisite word out there. I just couldn't find it. And we know an exquisite word when we hear it. Sometimes someone will say something and we will think that was perfect. I can think about going to the Hallmark section at the local store when I want to get a card for someone. And I, and I can go through 10 or 15 cards trying to find what? Just the right one. Well, how do we know it's just the right one? Because it communicates what's inside of us. Sometimes we need help learning to communicate, don't we? We, learn, we need help learning language. Because whether it's body language sign language, written language, verbal language, we know that there are words that fit and words that don't. We know sometimes when we use a word correctly or when we don't use it correctly or when we pronounce it incorrectly and someone says, not that, but this. I can think about learning languages when I've been in my educational pursuits trying to figure out how do you say that word and how do you say it in a sentence and where does the accent go? You see, we know that even the change of accent on a word 
can make all the difference in meaning. So we begin to connect together the power of words to express what's going on inside us or to receive what's going on inside someone else. Scripture lays it out that this is divine DNA. Remember that it's God who spoke the world into existence. Jesus is described as the Word of God. It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that speaks to us and through us, right? And I want you to consider this. Isn't it true that most of the commandments in the New Testament for a Christian can only be obeyed through some form of communication? The Great Commission can only be obeyed if we include some form of communication. But I wonder if our communication, somewhat like what happened with my father, could use some rehabilitation. You see, what we recognize is that sometimes communication is damaged. That for some reason, whether personally or societally, communication has somehow experienced a rupture. There is some kind of problem. Maybe it's infected with some societal disease and communication has become sick. And because communication is sick, society and relationships also become infected. They too become sickened. Oh, I've watched the power of rehabilitation. I know how powerful it is. You may be aware that one of the world-renowned spinal centers and treatment centers for traumatic brain injury is here in Atlanta. It's called the Shepherd Center, and I've seen their miracles for more than two decades right up close. I'm thinking about a young man who experienced a traumatic brain injury. He himself was fully cognitive, but the traumatic brain injury had taken away his ability to speak so he could not do sign language and he could not do verbal language of any kind. But through what I'm going to call for this podcast, Wakandan technology. If you haven't seen the movie Black Panther, you might not know what I meant by that. If you have seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's this otherworldly technology. And through that technology, the expertise of the medical staff and the fierce determination of this young man to communicate, I begin to watch as he could tap out on a modified screen letters that became words that became sentences. What a breakthrough for him. What a breakthrough for his family. But you see, it took an enormous amount of intentionality to restore the the ability to communicate. Jesus lets us know that communication matters as well. It's Jesus who says, let me, let me tell you something. You're going to be called into account for every careless word you speak. I've thought to myself, that might be a reason to never talk again, right? We're going to be called into account for every word we speak, whether it is through sign language, body language, Verbal language, yes. 
<sighs> I can't believe I'm going to share this with you, but I am. When I was a, a teenager, uh, my father owned a construction company, and that meant that one of our trucks was what you call a semi, and I was driving that truck, and it had what's called a low boy. That's a big, long trailer that hauls equipment, like a bulldozer or a backhoe. These are long trailers, and so when you turn onto a road, you, you have to swing very wide, and a lot of times that means you take up more than one lane. Well, I was, I was determined not to take up more than one lane. I thought, I got this. I'm going to do it. It's going to be just right, right? So I began to make the swing, and I think I've nailed it, and somebody next to me honks anyway. And my heart was not converted to the Lord yet. You might say that my vocabulary was also not converted to the Lord yet. And without thinking, I just flipped off the driver next to me, gave him the finger because I knew I didn't go into their lane. And when I rotated my head to see who it was, <clears throat> it was the preacher for my mom and dad's church. Yeah. Now I look back on that now and I'm like, Lord, seriously, <laughs> give a guy a break. And my and the preacher is just smiling at me a mile wide. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is in the days before cell phones. He's gonna get to a phone before I get to a phone. He's gonna call my parents. That's not my only communication mess up. How about you? How many times have you put your foot in your mouth and thought, oh, why did I say it? Or why did I say it that way? So when Jesus says, you're, you're going to be called into account for every careless word. I think I know why. Because Proverbs 18.21 said that those words carry so much power. Words create, but they don't just create goodness. They can create devastation. So often people want to say, well, that's not what I meant. But one of the things I've learned through life in my church in Atlanta, through this Love First Church I'm a part of, is that it's not just about intent. It's about impact. We might say, I didn't mean to say that, but that doesn't mean that the impact wasn't still there. We might say to someone, well, you just misunderstood me, rather than saying to someone, I'm so sorry that my words impacted you that way. Could you please help me understand how my words impacted you? You see, part of the rehabilitation of our ability to communicate with one another starts with humility. Do I really believe that words had that much power? And do I really believe that I'm going to be called into account for my words and do I believe that through the power of God and through the intervention of the Holy Spirit that I could improve the way I communicate and become a more effective communicator on behalf of the priorities of Jesus Christ? Jesus was concerned about this with the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders of his day, as you know, Many of them were wonderful. 
They gave their best effort. They demonstrated humility. Some of the people who came to Jesus with the greatest humility and became dedicated followers were Pharisees. Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 that a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. So it's not like there's just one group of people who never got it or they were all horrible. The truth is many of the religious leaders saw the truth in Jesus, came to follow Jesus, and Jesus through the Spirit began to shift the way they thought, felt, behaved, and spoke. Others, not so much. And Jesus calls them out. In Matthew chapter 23, one of the most famous chapters in Jesus's ministry, he begins several statements like this. Whoa. And he doesn't mean woe like stop. He means woe like lament. He says woe. There's something happening in society that we should be sad about. There's something happening in our religious life. There's something happening in our relationships that should cause us to lament. We should, somebody should say, whoa. And yes, woe as in slow it down, stop, pay attention. But woe as in a cry of lament. Jesus does this several times in this chapter. He said, to those of you that are known to be the religious writers, the scribes, to those of you who are known to be the religious holy people and set apart, the Pharisees, he says, to all of you hypocrites, now, when we hear the word hypocrite, and we've talked about this on the Love First podcast before, so I don't want to retrench this too much, but I want to remind you that the Greek word for hypocrite literally is, could kind of be characterized as undercover actor. It's someone that is acting a certain way while they cover something else. So a hypocrite isn't just someone who's unaware of the impact of their actions, because you can tell if they're a hypocrite or not. If you bring up someone's actions and how damaging they were, and they respond to you with great humility and transparency and repentance, then hypocrite is not appropriate. But if someone is trying to behave and say things one way to gain some form of power or benefit while they're hiding something darker underneath, that's a hypocrite. And Jesus says, to those of you who write the law, to those of you who speak the law, all I have to say to you is, you are hypocrites. But why? Why? He said, well, because see, your role in society is to accurately share who God is and who people are to God. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be proclaiming the wonders of God, who God is, the creator, the redeemer, the savior, the one who is written into existence, the very, the very world we, in which we live and our lives as well. The one who knit us together in our mother's womb. The one who knows what to do about our sin. The one who knows how to guide us through life. Who is that God? That's your first job. The second responsibility was, and who are you to that God? Who 
are you to that God? And Jesus does this phenomenally. Jesus can meet with a Pharisee like Nicodemus. His story is told in John chapter 3, John chapter 7, and John chapter 18 is where his story is told. And Nicodemus, though one of the Pharisees, is humble. He wants to know who Jesus is, and Jesus is helping him know, this is who God is to you, and this is who you are to God. And if you're willing to be born anew into that relationship, you can, you can be set free in a relationship with God. And Nicodemus believed him. On the other end of the scale, though, you've got the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You've got a woman caught in adultery. Her story is in John chapter 8. You've got a woman who, because of her physical condition, has been ostracized from her society for 12 years. Her story is in the book of Luke. You've got all these people whose stories are being told. And kind of the consummate of all of these stories in the book of Luke is the story of the prodigal son. This guy who believes that he is no longer a son to his father, and his father is no longer a son or a father to him. And in the story, what the scriptures constantly tell us is, no, 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 you've got God wrong and you've got you wrong. This is who God is to you, and this is who you are to God. And the writers of the law, the scribes, the speakers of the law, the Pharisees, this was their job. And Jesus says, here's the problem. You're not using your communication to get that job done. Your communication doesn't help people know who God is. And your communication doesn't help people know who they are to God. He said, let me describe to you your communication. He said, here's what it's like. He said, it's like you go out into the streets and you put heavy weights on the backs of widows And then while they're being crushed under the weight, you walk away and won't even lift a finger to help them. That's in Matthew 23. He says, here's what it's like. It's like the details of worship or the architecture of the temple is somehow more important than the God it honors and the people who come there for prayer and help. He said, that's what you're like. He said, you're like people who paint the outside of a tomb, bright white. So supposedly it's a beautiful structure, he said, but on the inside, it's, it's just full of dead bones, dead men's bones. Oh, it was scathing. It was scathing and they didn't like it. But by the end of it, he's weeping with them. He's pleading with them. He says, do you understand? You don't even know who God is to you or who you are to God. At the end of the whole thing, he says, do you understand that God is like a mother, like a mother hen? And this was, an, this was a progressive agrarian society. Everyone knew the metaphor Jesus was using to describe God. God is a mother hen. God is a protector. That's who God is to you. And he says, do you know who you are to him? You're like baby chicks. You're running around. You're innocent. You're inexperienced. You don't know the danger that lurks around you, but the mother hen does. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a mother hen. But you wouldn't have it. You see, Jesus says to them, do you understand how you got into this mess? 
where your communication smashes widows into the dirt, where your communication turns temples into tombs. He said the way you got into this is you didn't know who God was to you and you, you forgot who you are to God. So in the middle of all of this, Jesus says, let me tell you how this should be working. In Matthew 23, 23, he said, this is how it should be working. That you should elevate the heart of God. And he gives three descriptions of the heart of God. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Elevate, elevate those. Lift up, restore, rehabilitate the way you think about the heart of God and the way you think about your place among each other. Elevate justice. Make that a driving, compelling experience in all of your relationships. Make sure that you're thinking about justice all the time. And then he says, and you need to think about mercy because what you understand is, is these are not in competition with each other. It's not like justice or mercy. No, these go together. These are all perfectly united in the heart of God. God doesn't have a war going on in God's heart between justice and mercy. God's, God's heart is a perfect integration of justice and mercy. In fact, catch this, it is through mercy that God is perfectly just. Mm. But what about faithfulness? Well, you see, in the midst of working out justice and mercy, what will you absolutely need? You're going to need faithfulness. Because in those conversations that don't feel just, in those experiences where you don't experience mercy, what are you going to need if you're going to continue to be a representative of who God is to people and help people know who they are to God? You're going to have to live into a full-on faithfulness, right? So what is one of the characteristics of God? God is faithful. Scripture actually says that. But what about Jesus? Well, yes, this is one of the characteristics of Jesus is that we actually put our faithfulness, Romans chapter 3, in the faithfulness of Jesus. Boy, what about the Spirit? Think about the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit who actually moves into us as a dwelling. Moves into us as a dwelling. Moves into us as a dwelling. About a month ago, my wife and I celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary. We were reminiscing about places we've lived. Uh, one of the first places we lived after we were married was through the generosity of some people in Griffithville, Arkansas. They let us move into a house out in the country surrounded by rice fields, but the house had not been lived in for three years. So when we moved in, there was a lot of work to do. We literally set off all of these foggers inside the house and swept up dustpanfuls of mosquitoes. True story. We caught 36 mice in the first six weeks we lived there. We had traps 
all over the house. And yikes, we caught rats, two rats in an outshed laundry area. Yes, but we loved it because it was us. We made it a home. Well, then we got a job in Oregon for the summer. So we moved out to Oregon and we lived up in the woods in a trailer. And that trailer, eh, it had seen better days. I don't know if we'd have been safer on the outside than on the inside. It had mice too. It had spiders. It had slugs. It was Oregon. But we had each other and we made it a home. I'll bet some of you listening have have moved into a fixer-upper. I got to tell you something. Don McLaughlin, when the Holy Spirit moved in, I'm a fixer-upper. I was a fixer-upper. I was not hospitable. When the Holy Spirit moved into my life, the images, the pictures, the decorations of this house looked more like the old unredeemed man than the new man I was becoming in Christ. How about you? So when we're talking about faithfulness, the faithfulness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we understand that there is a perfect integration between what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But now I want to ask you a question. What has happened to the word justice in our current culture? What has happened to that word? You see, we start thinking through how language will be rehabilitated. And what we might need to own is that it's not just an internal matter of the heart. It's also a social experience. It's how is language used. And what we realize is the enemy of God will co-opt any word and weaponize it against God. I'm going to say that again. The enemy of God will co-opt any word and use it against God. And the enemy is doing that right now with the word justice. Now, let me illustrate this a little bit. When Jesus was being accused, was on trial and being accused, do you remember that they took his words and twisted them? and accused him of saying that he would destroy the temple. You remember that? Well, now, Jesus did say something like that. You remember? But the apostle John says, well, you do understand he meant his body. You recall in Acts chapter 6 and 7, when we're introduced to Stephen, and they accuse him, and they eventually kill him, what do they do? The enemy does what? Takes his words and weaponizes them against him. One more example. What did Satan do, the tempter, in the wilderness with Jesus just after his baptism? Did he not take the very words of God and weaponize them against God's own son, to try to damage him and the work he came to do. So what did Jesus do? Did Jesus abandon those scriptures? No. But Jesus knew that it was essential that he not fall into the trap 
of the enemy, and we must resist it the same way. Who could possibly believe that our world needs less justice? Who could possibly suggest that the desire for justice should somehow be silenced? Is there someone who could say, you know, I don't really think that cries for justice should receive our attention. You see, what's fascinating to me is that the words that actually reflect the heart of God are being weaponized to do damage to the people of God. So what do we do about that? Well, maybe sometimes it's time to retire a word. Maybe we just decide that we won't use a word a particular way any longer. This has happened during my lifetime. I can remember words that were used to describe people with disabilities when I was young, mental disabilities, physical disabilities. Now, bear in mind, I don't mean that they were used in a pejorative way. I mean, these were in clinical manuals. These were words that we were taught to use in school. But later, as people began to realize that those words carried baggage that could do damage, then those words were retired and other words were brought in their place. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I just wonder if justice is one of those words. Would would we... Would we... Advocate for retiring the word mercy. You say, well, the word mercy could be misused. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. But I wonder if we'd advocate for retiring the word mercy. Would, would we advocate for retiring the word faithfulness? Like, We just need to quit using the word faithfulness because like some people are unfaithful and some people use the promise of faithfulness when they're being hypocritical. So maybe we should quit talking about being faithful. Maybe we should quit um, encouraging like people in marriages to be faithful to one another. Or, Or maybe we should just stop using the word faithful when we talk about faithfulness to God or faithfulness to our word. You're like, no, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't either. Yeah, I think I don't think the answer is always to retire a word. I wouldn't want to retire the word love. I, I just can't imagine retiring that word. And you know what I think? I, I can't imagine retiring the word grace and even if we put amazing on the front end. I would just always want to be able to reach for that platinum expression. Amazing grace. I'd want to be able to put a put a few words together like matchless love, unfailing faithfulness. I would love to be able to say to my friends every day, his mercy is new every morning. You see, it's hard to imagine retiring those words, even though we know they can be misused, right? Yeah, I think that's where we are with justice. Rather than waving the white flag and continuing to weaponize it against each other, meaning 
quit talking about justice or stop emphasizing justice. I think we need to take a step back and say, no, wait a minute. Hold up, hold up. What did Jesus say about it? What did Jesus say about it? Well, when he was trying to get religious leaders and religious people to rethink all of this, to think about who God is to them, who they are to God, to remember that God has this longing, you know, like that fierce maternal instinct that Jesus uses to describe it when he says, like a mother hen who's going to actually do everything to protect, gather and protect her little chicks. If we're going to communicate that to people and we're going to make sure that we do our job, I think we're going to need the word justice. So rather than retiring it, what if we just invested in it? What if we went to work on it? What if we started thinking like this? If Jesus thinks justice is like a top priority, if Jesus says, hey, listen, we got to reorder the whole thing. You need to emphasize justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and you need to make sure that when you do all the other things, remember he said without neglecting these other things, when you do all those other things, do not equalize them with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Don't make your practice of religion as important as the values that our religion is turning us toward. Don't ever make, Matthew 23, don't ever make the temple and the gold and the altar more important than the God you've come to meet in that place. Amen. Don't ever make your commitment to the tradition and practice of religion somehow more important than the values all of that is pointing us toward. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. So let's elevate justice, mercy, and faithfulness as we were called to do. Let's recognize they don't work in, they're not in juxtaposition to one another. They're not in competition with each other. In fact, they're essential for each other. Do you remember I, I mentioned earlier about this young friend of mine who through his fierce commitment to communication, fierce determination to communicate, and through this stunning technology and through the expertise of the medical staff that all three of them work together to restore his ability to communicate. What if we understood that justice and mercy and faithfulness go together and Jesus says, highlight them, make sure you do them, put them above all else. If you talk about them, you're talking about the right thing. If you're pursuing them, you're pursuing the right thing. If you're sacrificing for them, you're sacrificing for the right thing. If you've centered them in your expression of the gospel, you've centered the right thing. Make sure you're crystal clear that you understand that it's justice, mercy, and faithfulness that express to the world who God is and express to people who they are to God. Don't miss that. Well, I want to close by letting you know that justice, mercy, and faithfulness were shown to me when I flipped the bird at the preacher. He was quite merciful and understanding. He even told me some stories about his own 
a failure to communicate. My dad didn't have to tell me stories about his failure to communicate. Before my dad came to Christ, he taught me a few of the very words that I needed to give up. And he was very humble and transparent about all of that. In fact, it's interesting that they both modeled for me that we didn't have to give up justice and mercy and faithfulness when we were helping people come to know God. In fact, those were the very values that helped me see who God was to me. So where do we go from here? Well, first of all, one of the reasons that we're struggling with our communication is diversity of thought. People think differently. And even when we think similarly, if we'll explore deeply enough, we'll discover our differences. Agreement is oversold. Understanding is a better uh, is a better pursuit. Sure, we want to come to agreement. If my wife and I are going out for dinner, we don't want to spend all evening disagreeing. I get that we want to come to agreement. But when we're talking about matters of faithfulness, mercy, and justice, driving for agreement can actually shut down good communication. Driving for understanding is part of being just, merciful, and faithful. So first, just mark it down. Diversity of thought is good. It helps us accomplish gospel goals. Number two, proximity is essential. It's one thing to try to understand what someone's saying through a meme or or, a, or a, a, some message, a soundbite, but that's not true understanding. Wouldn't it be better if we took the time to actually clarify what we mean by a word or listen to someone else while they clarify? Not to find agreement first and not to argue first or not to win the argument first, but to understand. So diversity of thought is essential and proximity with each other. Spending time with each other is essential. And finally, transparent engagement. Rather than trying to make sure that we look good at the end of a conversation, it might be better that we've achieved self-revealing at the end of a conversation. Rather than trying to come out on top at the end of a conversation or that somehow we were an expert and we had it all together, a great way sometimes to end a conversation is to say something like, thank you for all this input. You've given me so much to think about. Or maybe a great way to end a conversation would be something like this. I don't know yet how I feel about what you've said, but I'm crystal clear how I feel about you, that I love you, and I respect you, and I will honor you. What about something like that? Sometimes the way to further a conversation is just to say, tell me more. Please tell me more. Could you share a little bit more about that? And not every conversation has to be a 50-50 dialogue. Sometimes terrific conversations is where someone talks a lot and we ask a lot of really good, meaningful questions. Sometimes an equally good conversation is someone asking us a lot of conversations that help us not only self-reveal, but clarify our own thoughts. There are many times when someone has helped me think through something, right? And I might discover at the end of that conversation that I don't agree with my first premise. And now, or if I do, maybe I think more broadly than I did. Okay, so diversity of thought, proximity, time together, and 
active engagement. And finally, if someone is being negatively affected by the policies and practices we take for granted, is this something Jesus would encourage us to ignore? If someone is experiencing some form of injustice by the things we think are just, would Jesus encourage us to ignore that? Would that be just and merciful and faithful? Question number two. If you pass on positive stories about people you like without checking them out to see if they're true, or you pass on negative stories about people you don't favor without checking to see if they're true, would Jesus encourage you to continue this practice? Would Jesus encourage you to do that? What I'm saying is, if you pass on some story or some something you found on the internet that really uh, uh, kind of shines a bright light, the best light on the people you really like, the the party, the politicians, the pundits, the preachers that you think are saying all the right things. If you pass on stories about them, but you don't check out to see if they're true. Or for those that, that you don't like, the preachers and pundits and politicians and policymakers that you don't like, if you pass on really negative stories about them without checking to see if they're true, do you think that Jesus would encourage you to continue that practice? Would he say, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. That sounds just and merciful and faithful. Think about it. And finally, do you wish that people would just quit talking about the issues that they believe are important because they cause you problems or discomfort? Do you wish people that would quit talking about the, the struggles they're having because it's uncomfortable and, and hard for you, right? Would Jesus encourage you to be quick to speak and quick to become irritated with them? Or would he encourage you to listen and strive for oneness? As we close this podcast, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. Thank you for the comments that you put in the live, uh, share live when we're premiering this. Thank you for all of your feedback. And I'd ask you to share this with someone who might be struggling with their communication and see if this couldn't help them to find a better way to rehab the gift of communication.